It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. Markets be messing with our heads, yeah, real bad, yeah, thinking twice about splashing in, yeah, with our cash, yeah, VIX popping like soda bread, yeah, a lot of dread, yeah, crypto rising like it's 21, yeah, a lot of fun, yeah, big tech dropping staff like it's 01, yeah, just begun, yeah, Netflix adding subs again, yeah, run the dub, yeah, crash to the debt limit, yeah, no deal, yeah, Fed gonna slow its roll, yeah, price control, yeah, bond prices rise again, yeah, about time, yeah, earnings feeling choppy, yeah, kinda sloppy, yeah, retail sales soft, yeah, no loft, yeah, mixed signals cloud in the view, yeah what you gonna do yeah you're gonna tune into the express yeah like we always do yeah cash money in the house welcome back and welcome aboard rally interrupted at least for the dow jones industrials and the s p 500 which both snapped two-week winning streaks last week although the nasdaq continued its winning ways for the week the dow jones industrials fell 2.7 percent the s p 500 fell 0.6 percent while the nasdaq rose a half a percent still all three major equity indexes closed friday with gains telling us that investors are looking for a reason to believe going into a weekend it wasn't that way at the end of last year better than expected subscriber growth for netflix especially for its new ad supported pricing tier help lift streaming stocks and the tech sector overall don't knock the rally happening over there at the Nasdaq. It's up more than 6% so far this year. And then there's Bitcoin. Don't look now, but Bitcoin prices are up close to 30% so far this year as risk is back on the menu for some investors. The lure of risky assets may be driven by the belief among some investors that the Fed is likely to temper future rate hikes and maybe stop hiking altogether after its March 23rd meeting. Fed fund futures are still overwhelmingly pointing to a quarter of a percent increase in the Fed funds rate at the FOMC meeting next week and another quarter of a percent at that March meeting. Future readings on inflation, though, are going to heavily influence whatever comes next. The big question that is swirling around capital markets is whether the past rate hikes actually slowed the economy into a recession. We won't know until it's over, of course, but the stock market, believe it or not, can be a useful leading indicator. Research firm CFRA says equity prices typically point to the risk of a recession seven months before it starts and bottom out five months before it ends, according to data since World War II. According to our pals at YCharts, the S&P 500 bottomed on October 12th, down 24% from its highs. That was a little over three months ago. The S&P 500 is up more than 11% since then, by the way. So, if CFRA is right, the U.S. economy may be in a recession now that could end in early March. But it sure doesn't feel that way when we look into the leading economic indicators that go into the recession gumbo. Unemployment at 3.5% is well below any recessionary level in history, although that could change in the coming months. Manufacturing is starting to weaken, but not drastically. Consumer spending is still holding up fairly well, even though December's retail sales were soft and real personal income is still holding up thanks to wage gains. All of those indicators could get worse as the impact of the Fed's rate hikes make their way through the economy, but we're not there, at least not yet. And that leads us to our big three for the week. Number one, if you followed the money at the end of 2022, it led to cash. According to the Investment Company Institute, money markets held a record $4.8 trillion as of the first week of January. That's a little bit more than the $4.79 trillion that went into cash in May of 2020 in the early days of the pandemic. And this includes money from both retail and institutional investors, by the way. That tells us two things. One, investors are scared. We knew that. We feel it. And this bear market has been no fun. Two, 
That's a lot of dry powder sitting on the sidelines ready to be put back to work. While a lot of investors have been putting their money to work in safer places like money market CDs and short-term bonds where yields are still topping 3 or 4%, they are still long cash and could flood back into the market once they're convinced that a bottom is in. It doesn't mean they will, but 4% could look a little boring if equity markets can stay on track. Number two, Take a look around the world and you might get blinded by the light of the performance of some equity markets. China, which was the worst performing equity market on the planet in 2022, is now up 52% from its lows. Europe, which is supposed to be in the throes of a recession, is up 33%. The UK, which is also supposed to be in a deep downturn, is up 28%. Material stocks are up 28%. Communication stocks, which were hammered in 2022, are at a four-month high. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and again, and again. The stock market and the economy are not the same. Never were, never will be. But as CFRA reminds us, equity markets tend to bottom several months before a recession begins, although this feels a little extreme. But how about Dr. Copper? And then, there's copper, which is the only pipe I use. It costs money. It costs money because it saves money. Oh, Cosmo, you are so right, because copper prices are up 32% from their lows last year, not something you typically see in a recession or bear market. And number three. Someone did because the animal spirits are running all over the options market. The VIX, or volatility index, which is a measure of the future volatility expected in the market as represented by options activity, is up over 20 and holding there for the first time in a long time. Anything over 20, by the way, is pretty high. Remarkably, the VIX mostly remained below 20 throughout last year amid the sell-off, so the fact that it's popping now amid a broad stock market recovery, that's worth noting. And last week was the fifth biggest week of options volume in history, according to Bloomberg, with 227 million contracts traded. That's quite a bit of activity in a pretty speculative market, but it tells us that the pros are not convinced that the recent stock market rally is going to stick, and they may be hedging their bets through the options market. To be sure, some of that options activity may be bets the market will trade higher in the next 30 days. We're going to see when those options come due. Keep an eye on the VIX over the next couple of weeks, especially through the next Fed decision. If it cools down, the market may start to feel a little bit safer. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and earnings are going to be flying in from all sectors of the market. According to the good folks at FactSet, for the fourth quarter of 2022, with 11% of S&P 500 companies reporting results, 67% of them have reported a positive earnings per share surprise, and 64% have reported a positive revenue surprise. That's a little bit better than things looked a few weeks ago, but we shouldn't be surprised by that at all. Companies like to play that little game with analysts and investors by sandbagging their forecasts and then surprising to the upside. Sometimes it actually works. Still, for the fourth quarter of 2022, the blended earnings decline for the S&P 500 is forecast to be a negative 4.6%. If a negative 4.6% is the actual decline for the quarter, it's going to mark the first time the index has reported a year-over-year -year decline in earnings since the third quarter of 2020, and we know what was happening back then. In any case, we'll get results this week from widely held companies including Tesla, Microsoft, Visa, MasterCard, J&J, &J, Intel, 3M, Chevron, American Express, and Boeing, among others. Big tech companies have been laying off workers by the thousands lately. Alphabet announced 12,000 job cuts on Friday, and Microsoft said last Wednesday it's going to lay off 10,000 workers as software sales stall. After phenomenal growth in 2021 that led to robust hiring coming out of the pandemic, tech companies are facing the hydra of slowing sales, thinner margins, and rising interest rates, which boost their borrowing costs. 
With layoffs mostly concentrated in the tech sector, some people are actually starting to call this a tech session, not a recession. On the economic front, we're going to get a better reading on just how steep the slowdown in GDP was in the fourth quarter as the Bureau of Economic Analysis releases the advanced estimate for fourth quarter GDP. Economists project the U.S. economy grew 2.5% at a seasonally adjusted annual rate, following a 3.2% expansion in the third quarter and after two consecutive quarterly declines in the first half of the year. That slowdown in the third quarter probably came from lighter consumer spending, which accounts for nearly 70% of U.S. GDP. The Bureau of Economic Analysis will also release the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index for December on Friday, which provides the latest update on inflation. The PCE is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation because it's a little bit more dynamic and tracks a broader range of consumer goods across the economy. PCE prices likely rose just 0.1% last month, just like CPI, down from 0.4% in November. Yet another sign that inflation is slowing. Core prices, which exclude food and energy costs, are projected to have risen 4.4% year-over-year down from 4.7% in November, and we're getting closer and closer, albeit slowly, to the Fed's target of 2 to 2.5% inflation. The Federal Reserve is under a pretty intense microscope these days as it tries to navigate a soft landing from historically high interest rates and a slowing economy. Every move it makes, every word uttered by a Fed president or voting member of the FOMC is scrutinized, analyzed, and dissected for hidden meaning about the central bank's next monetary policy moves. We know what they say in public and on the media, but what really goes on behind closed doors at the central bank? What are central bankers looking at, talking about, analyzing? We're about to find out from a former Fed president and vice chairman of the Federal Open Market Committee as Bill Dudley joins the Express. He was the 10th president and the CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, serving as vice chairman and a permanent member of the FOMC, and now he is a senior advisor to the Griswold Institute at Princeton University, and he's our very special guest this week on the Investopedia Express. Welcome. It's so good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Pretend you're in your old office, and your old job as president of the New York Fed and a voting member of the FOMC. We're a couple of weeks away now from the next FOMC meeting. What data would you be looking at? What conversations are you having? What's actually happening inside? Well, right now, the Fed's pretty locked into a couple more 25 basis point rate hikes. So this meeting is not going to be a surprise. What people are really going to be paying attention to is the press conference of Chair Powell in terms of how he spins things about how either nervous he is or less nervous about the inflation outlook. The Fed basically has already foreshadowed the fact that they're going to slow down from and they're doing 75 basis point rate hikes. And then the last time was 50. The next time it's going to be 25 because the Fed's getting to the end of the tightening process. We know that for a number of reasons. Chair Powell was asked a question by Nick Timoros, who's an accomplished reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And Nick basically said, what do you think of the logic of moving down to 25 basis point rate hike next time? And Chair Powell basically said, the logic seemed pretty good to him. <laughs> so it's pretty much locked in. In fact, the inflation numbers are a little bit better too. So they're going to do 25 at the upcoming meeting, concludes February 1st. They'll probably do another 25 at the March meeting. And then there's a question about whether there'll be a third 25 in May or not. And that one's probably still up in the air at this point. So a lot of investors think that every time we get a new report, whether it's retail sales or the CPI report and the Fed meetings near, the Fed's going to change its mind and make a decision. But as you explained, these decisions are made long ago, looking at data that they've been looking at for months at a time. And they're looking at trends. They're not looking at a data point in time and saying, oh, maybe we should change our mind and readjust the dot plot. Am I right? Yeah, every economic release is not as important as people think it is. I mean, right now, Chair Paul has basically said what he needs to see. He needs to see not only goods inflation come down, which it has, 
but also he needs to see services inflation outside of the housing sector to come down, which it mostly hasn't. And he also needs to see more slack in the labor market, which hasn't happened at all at this point. So basically he's accomplished one of the three goals. And as long as he hasn't made progress on services inflation, has made progress on slack in the labor market, the Fed's gonna keep tightening for a while longer. And then when they get to a level of rates, 5%, five and a quarter percent, they're gonna pause. And they're gonna hold rates there until that restrictive monetary policy takes hold and slows the economy down enough to generate the desired slack in the labor market. This is all about basically making the labor market less tight. So unusual. And Fed Chair Powell seems like a pretty subdued guy. Fed chairs don't necessarily like to be in the limelight, although you could say that Alan Greenspan liked that limelight a lot and Paul Volcker couldn't avoid it because he was six foot eight. But Fed chairs kind of like to keep it pretty low profile. But every single move the Fed chair makes or every conversation or speech a Fed president makes is under the microscope, as I said. Is that the way it should be? Well, remember, monetary policy works through financial conditions, works through what happens not just to short-term rates, but what happens to bond yields, the stock market, the value of the dollar. And so you really do want the market to essentially think along with the Fed. If the market understands what the Fed's reaction function is, then the market can price in moves by the Fed before the Federal Reserve has actually done anything yet. This is one reason why you look at the market right now, several more rate hikes are already priced in. So that's keeping stocks at subdued levels. It's keeping bond yields a little bit elevated. The fact is the market already expects the Fed to do a bunch more. And that's really the reason why you can communicate in this open manner. Well, in the last few years, and then you know this well, the Fed has gone from lowering interest rates basically to zero and buying hundreds of billions of dollars in government bonds and mortgage-backed securities to aggressively raising interest rates and selling hundreds of billions of dollars in government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Dovish policy and quantitative easing to hawkish policy and quantitative tightening. That's really extreme, Bill. What does that do to the foundations of our economy? The Fed made a mistake this last couple of years. They were very slow to tighten monetary policy. If you remember, they tied their hands and basically said that they're not going to tighten until they reach full employment and 2% inflation. And they're confident that inflation is going to stay above 2% for some time in the future. So what that meant was that early last year, they were still keeping rates at zero and buying assets, even though the economy was already overheating. This was compounded by some significant forecast errors. They thought the labor market was looser than it turned out to be. They thought that after the pandemic subsided, more people would re-enter the labor force. And so there'd be more slack in the labor market. The labor market wouldn't be as tight. And they didn't think that inflation was going to stay as high for as long as it turned out to be. So late in terms of responding to changes in the economic outlook and then the economic outlook being quite different than what they anticipated. I'm not taking shots at them, but these are some of the smartest people we have in economics right now and in policy. They understand these things. So how could they miss these things? Was it because of the extremes of what happened during the pandemic and coming out of it that they were not able to forecast as clearly as maybe they could in so-called normal times? Why mistakes? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on here that are different. Number one, we don't have a lot of experience with pandemics and recoveries from pandemics. The last big pandemic was 1918. (laughs) So that's a long time ago. Second thing was there was a huge amount of fiscal stimulus that happened in 2020 to 2021. It's a wage inflation that's putting the pressure on companies, which then end up raising their prices, which ends up then destroying demand on the consumer side. Economics is like a body. You twist your ankle, you start limping, your back starts to hurt. You start favoring your back, your neck starts to hurt. So it's all connected. If you were a voting member today of the FOMC, would you vote to keep hiking rates beyond mid-year or beyond the next couple of Fed meetings? 
I mean, I think I would do the 325 basis point rate hikes that are already penciled in if you look at the summary of economic projections. Uh, most people on the FOMC think that that's a good stopping point. So I would certainly do that. Then I think the question is really how long do you keep rates high? And I'm very comfortable with the Fed's notion that we're going to have to keep rates high throughout 2023. Rate cuts won't be as fast as what the market's pricing in at this point. Rate cuts, as you know, don't necessarily happen for good news reasons. When the Fed is cutting rates, sometimes there's a real structural problem. We obviously saw it in 2020 when the pandemic set in. We saw it in 2008 and the great financial crisis. So a lot of investors may be wishing for that because it does give a little octane to stock prices, but it's not necessarily a good sign that everything's okay, is it? Well, when the Fed starts cutting rates, it means that the economy is weak and the unemployment rate's rising. So obviously, the stock market will take comfort from the fact that the interest rates are coming down, but will take less comfort from the fact that earnings will be weaker because the economy will be growing much less quickly. There's a good chance we're going to have a recession. If you look at the Fed's forecast, they expect the unemployment rate is going to have to rise above 4.5%. So that's a full percentage point increase above where we are today. Every time the U.S. economy has had an increase in the unemployment rate of more than a half a percent, the U.S. has fallen into recession. So we're 12 for 12 since World War II. So I think there's a pretty high probability of recession. Not right away. I think the economy still has quite a bit of momentum. One thing that's helping the economy right now, for example, is the fact that we've had declines in oil prices. We've had declines in energy prices. Headline inflation has come down. And so the wages, when they were 5% and inflation was 8%, that was pretty tough. But now when wages are 5%, inflation is running a little bit softer, that helps. We're also seeing some of the indexation that's going to help people this month. Social Security benefits, cost of living adjustment, 8.7% to 70 million Americans. It's about $100 billion of increased government spending that's going to start in January. So that's also going to support the economy. My own view is the economy is going to be a bit more persistent on the growth side, which you would normally think that's good. But in this case, it's not so good because it just means the Federal Reserve is going to have to keep rates higher for longer. The good news is not so good news type situation that we keep finding ourselves in over and over. What would it take for you to pivot if you were still a voting member of the FOMC? What sign out there, what signal would say, it's time to go the other way here? Well, obviously, it probably will be about what's happening on the growth side to the extent that we start to really slow down or even contract. That would make me feel, okay, now it's time to start at least thinking about letting off the brakes. One of the challenges for the Fed, though, is when the Fed is done tightening, financial conditions are going to ease. And when the Fed actually starts cutting rates, financial conditions are going to ease a lot. So the Fed needs to be a little bit cautious, knowing that a change in direction by the Fed policy is going to lead to the stock market rallying and bond yields falling. They're going to have to be comfortable that that's appropriate for the economy at that particular point in time. What's the biggest myth or misconception about the Federal Reserve that you've noticed in your career? I think there's a couple. Number one is this notion that the Federal Reserve has all this top secret information that allows it to make much better decisions than everybody else. I think the Fed has lots of really good high quality information about whether the next CPI report is going to be 0.2 or 0.3. But in terms of the sort of big picture questions, I don't think the Fed has much better information than most people that are paying attention to the economy and paying attention to markets. The second thing, I think a big misconception about the Fed's how much politics plays into the Fed's decisions. Politics don't play into the Fed's decision. The Fed sets monetary policy based on what it thinks it needs to do to achieve the outcomes of full employment, stable inflation at the Fed's target of 2%. So elections come and go. They don't really affect monetary policy. People, I think, overrate that in terms of thinking that that's going to affect the Fed's decisions. 
The Fed also says it really doesn't care or pay too much attention to what's happening in the stock market, but you can't ignore what's happening in the capital markets, one, because of the wealth effect, two, because a lot of people tie their own perceptions of how well we're doing to what they see in terms of on the business news TV channels or walking past Times Square or wherever they happen to be and they see the stock market. It's a symbol as much as it is a real place where people are counting their wealth. So how does that play in, if at all? So the stock market matters to the extent that it affects wealth, wealth affects spending. But the stock market, the Fed doesn't care about the stock market directly. So in the current circumstances, the Fed wants tighter financial conditions. So if the stock market goes down, that's not a bad thing. That's actually tightening financial conditions in line with what the Fed wants to achieve. Now, if you go back a few years and the economy is not that strong, inflation is low, stock market weakens. Well, that's not consistent with what the Fed wants. The Fed wants financial conditions to be easy. And so in that situation, the Fed might be more sensitive to weakness in the stock market. So there are times where the Fed cares deeply about the stock market going down. There's other times where it cares deeply about the stock market not going up. We're in a situation right now where the Fed's not your friend. The Fed wants tighter financial conditions, and that's what they've accomplished over the last six months. What's the most obscure yet most important indicator you like to look at as the New York Fed president? New York is a fascinating state in and of itself, but you had access to a lot of data there. What was the one that just tickled you or just the one that you went to on a regular basis that just delighted you? Well, I think that the indicators that you care about change depending on what questions you're trying to answer. So let me give you a more recent example. A number of years ago, people didn't spend much time at all thinking about the job openings and labor turnover report, which measures the ratio of unfilled jobs to unemployment. We'd love the JOLTS report over here. Over the last year, that's become very, very important because the number of unfilled jobs is very high relative to the level of unemployment. The ratio today is 1.7 to 1. Back in February 2020, it was 1.2 to 1. Paul said it needs to be one-to-one. So this is a report now that's pretty important. Another example of a report that's pretty important right now is the Employment Cost Index report. That's our best measure of wage inflation. Wage inflation looks like it's running, depending on what indicator you look at, 5%, maybe as high as 6% if you look at some of the Atlanta Fed wage tracker. 5% is not consistent with 2% inflation. We need to see wages rise in the 3 to 4% range. And so the Employment Cost Index is actually a much more reliable measure of wages than average hourly earnings, which gets so much attention on a monthly basis, because employment cost index is looking at like job to like job. And so it doesn't get distorted by mix effects. You're an economist, a trained economist. Who's the most influential economist in your opinion? Who's the economist that had the biggest impact on you and your career as you think about it? Well, the economist that had the biggest impact on my career was a professor at Berkeley named Jim Pierce. I was a research assistant for him for five years when I was a graduate student, and he was a macroeconomist. I wasn't, and I learned a lot of real-time macro working for him. He's the one who gave me the idea of going to work at the Federal Reserve in Washington because he had come there to Berkeley by way of the Federal Reserve in Washington. So the whole idea of going into policy work, he sort of gave me the idea. And he was a terrific mentor to me throughout my career. So he's the most important economist from my perspective. All right, let's get your top book on economics that has been so important to you in your life that you would want to recommend to our listeners. What's the most special book in your opinion? For me, probably the most special book is The Introduction to Economics by Paul Samuelson. Now, you have to go back a ways to get that book, but when I went to college in the early 1970s, that was the introductory textbook for economics. And I imagine if I had hated it, I probably wouldn't be an economist today. So that was a pretty important book for me to at least view as tolerable. 
Let's go out on this. You know, Investopedia was built on our definitions and investing terms and our financial terms. What's your favorite financial investing or economics term and why? Financial conditions. Many, many years ago, Jan Hassis and I, Goldman Sachs Financial Condition Index, which basically was trying to argue that what happens to financial conditions matters for how the economy performs and is an important intermediate variable when you're looking at the Fed moving the federal funds rate. It's how it affects financial conditions that matters with the impulse to the economy is. It took about 20 years for a Fed chair person to latch onto this as a right way to think about monetary policy. So both Jan and I are pretty pleased that Chair Powell subscribes the financial conditions as a way of thinking about the impulse of monetary policy to the real economy. We love that term, and we're going to add your name to it. So good to have you on The Express. Bill Dudley, the former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the former vice chairman and permanent member of the FOMC and now a senior advisor at the Griswold Institute at Princeton University. So good to have you on The Express. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Just the Facts by Max on Instagram. Max suggests equity dilution this week. And that is a super smart term to know these days, given how much air has been let out of both the capital and private markets over the past 12 months and the prospect for secondary offerings if the recovery continues. According to my favorite website, equity dilution occurs when a company increases the number of outstanding shares and therefore reduces the ownership percentage for existing shareholders. Equity dilution works kind of like this. If a company has a total of 1,000 shares of float on the market, for example, and its management issues another 1,000 shares in a secondary offering, there are now 2,000 shares outstanding. The owners of the first 1,000 shares would face a 50% dilution factor. That means an owner of 100 shares now owns 5% of the company rather than 10%. And there are other ways dilution can happen too. Exercising stock options is dilutive to shareholders when it results in an increase in the number of shares outstanding. And convertible debt and equity can be dilutive when these securities are converted to shares. While the dollar amount of your existing shares might change, your ownership percentage does, and that slaps a little different. Good suggestion, Max. Our finest socks are coming your way. We're going to let the great Julia Child take us out this week. The legendary cook and television star is one of my favorite people, and I'm among millions of cooks and fans who feel that way. I loved the way she threw herself into her passion for cooking and literally threw pots and pans around her kitchen as she attempted to make the most complicated of French recipes. She was fearless, she was human, and she was a lot of fun to watch. Here's Julia from one of her early shows on WGBH talking about the fear of failure. And if you're going to have a sense of fear of failure, you're just never going to learn how to cook because cooking is, well, lots of it is one failure after another, and that's how you finally learn. For instance, you've got to have developed what the French call je m'en foutisme, or I don't care what happens, the sky can fall and omelets can go over all over the stove. I'm going to learn. I shall overcome. I shall learn and overcome. Julia Child, what a gem. Special thanks to Bill Dudley for climbing aboard the Express this week. That was our first Fed president, and it was a real treat to speak with him this week. Thank you for riding with us this week, as always. And we want to know, how are you holding up? How are educated investors like you riding out this volatility? If you have five more minutes for us, take our investor sentiment survey, which you'll find in the show notes, and let us know how you're feeling. Bullish, bearish, patient, poised? What's your biggest worry? What would you do with an extra 10 grand right now? We'll share the results with you on next week's show, as always, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.